Hey folks, it's Kevin Pang. It's that time again for Best of Proof Award Season. We're bringing you our award-winning episodes while we produce new ones that will debut in March, just a few short weeks. This week, we have another episode by our head producer behind Proof. This episode by managing producer Yumi Araki looks at the history of chartreuse. It's a green liqueur that's produced by monks in France. And this episode won Proof Best Podcast at the 2022 International Association of Culinary Professional Media Awards. We're super proud of this one, and I think you'll enjoy it. So this week on Proof, it's the drink that wouldn't die. Hey, Yumi. Hey, Kevin. How's it going? Really, really great. We're having friends over for the first time in like 18 months for dinner. And yeah, super excited about that. Yeah, like the last time it happened, my friends Kelly and Cal came over. They brought over this gift. And it's this bottle of liqueur that I've only vaguely heard about, but never really tried. It's this pale, grassy green color. It's almost like someone had steeped green Jolly Ranchers in water. And I'm actually holding it in my hand right now. And it's a bottle of chartreuse. And I have to say, I've not opened this. It's sat in my cupboard for the last 18 months. And I have no idea what to do with it. Sitting open in your cupboard? You haven't even tried it once? No, I'm a little bit scared. I mean, like, I don't know anything about it, but I know you are a big cocktail nerd, Yumi, and I know you're actually working on a story about chartreuse. I have no idea what to do with it. What you do is drink it. (laughs) Come on now. No, but in all seriousness, I get the intimidation. You know, the first time I ever had chartreuse, I didn't really know anything about it either. I think my friend Dan poured me a tiny bit in a shot glass and was like, you know, don't drink it all at once. Just take a sip. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Took a longish swig and the chartreuse going down felt like, I don't know, the Incredible Hulk screaming and sprinting down the back of my throat or something like that. Whoa, that sounds super intense. Yeah, I mean, apparently this is a common reaction. One of my sources for the story who quoted a blog entry described it like this. And it's like, spend a day in the forest, collect everything you can, infuse it into 110 proof booze, and then shotgun it into your mouth. Holy smokes. Yeah, you know, and I think part of what makes the taste so intense is the fact that chartreuse is made up of these 130 different herbs and spices And the other wild thing is that nobody really knows what those 130 herbs are, except for two people. So there's two monks who are entrusted with the recipe at any given time. What? Just two people? I mean, what happens? What if something happens to one of them? What's going to happen to chartreuse? (laughs) Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I feel the precariousness of chartreuse deeply when I was looking into the backstory. There's mudslides, there's evictions, the French Revolution happens and it gets in the way of the monks. I felt like chartreuse was always one historical event away from disappearing. Wow. So it sounds like it's a bit of a minor miracle that this drink exists in my hands. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the unofficial motto for the monks who make chartreuse, you know, they're called the Carthusian monks, is this. That crux dum volbitur orbis, which means the cross stands firm as the world turns. That's Father Michael K. Holleran, who's a former Carthusian monk, who I got to talk to for this story. 
He was actually involved in the production of Chartreuse when he was at La Grande Chartreuse Monastery in the uh, 80s. And, you know, I think this motto helps to explain why this group of monks and the liquor that they produce are so resilient. There's all this chaos that happens in the world, yet the cross and their drink, right, are somehow steadfastly still there. Man, this really sounds like the drink that just would not die. Yeah, that's totally it. Well, after the story, I'm going to be ready, I think, to try my first sip of chartreuse. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Kevin Pang, and this is Proof. Proof's managing producer, Yumi Araki, brings us this story. So you're probably wondering, how and why did a bunch of silent monks come to make a world-famous liqueur? The story begins in the year 1605, when a man named François Anibal d'Estres gets his hands on the recipe for a cure-all called the Elixir of Long Life. Apologies in advance to any French speakers out there. My French is terrible. But before we get into this recipe, I want to give you a brief overview on who these silent monks are, since their order is pretty central to this story. And, you know, they're the ones who make the chartreuse, even to this day. The Carthusians are a group of monks and nuns within the Catholic Church who focus on praying for the salvation of the world. And they do this prayer quietly and mostly in solitude, which might sound familiar to you if you've ever watched the documentary Into Great Silence. The film documents the day-to-day life for monks at La Grande Chartreuse, which is the monastery headquarters for the Carthusian order. There's only monks there, by the way, no nuns. This Grand Chartreuse Monastery is in the Alpine mountain range of Grenoble, France, close to Switzerland. This area is austere but beautiful. Dramatic winter landscapes and crisp green summers. I asked Father Michael to remember the first time he laid eyes on the landscape. One of the workmen of the house picked me up and drove me to, up the mountains and to, to the monastery. And it was very cloudy. It was overcast. It was middle of winter, so I didn't see anything. <laughs> But the next morning when I opened the window, this incredible mountain was in front of me. And then I said, wow, this is is what it's all about. This expansive setting will eventually become important for chartreuse production, as the monks had the space to build a distillery, and they had access to some of the alpine herbs that are used to make chartreuse. But the monks weren't always chartreuse producers. Originally, the monks supported their order through metal and woodwork, But this work was time-consuming, and it was labor that took them away from their primary task of prayer. So, eventually, they turned to the art of alchemy and pharmacology, which were common skills for religious men to study during the Middle Ages. And this is where our man, François-Anibal d'Estres, comes in. François was a French nobleman. He eventually became Marshal of France, the guy who leads the French military. So somehow, he got his hands on the recipe for something called the elixir of long life. We don't exactly know who he got this elixir recipe from in the first place, but this person was likely too poor to get any of the ingredients for this miracle elixir. So the theory is they gave the recipe to Marshal Destress. But Destress couldn't really do much with the recipe himself. He's a man of diplomacy and tactics, not really of science and letters. 
So he donates the recipe to a group of people who do possess the know-how, which is the Carthusian monks. Here's Father Michael. We have a mystical appreciation of plants and animals and the whole natural world coming from God and then therefore having wonderful depths and, and, and powers that contemplatives and monks would be the best to understand. So in, in the Middle Ages, as you may know, the monks were the apothecaries of Europe. And that's why their formula was entrusted to us. So the monks go to work on the recipe, initially at their satellite monastery in Vauvert, France, and then at La Grande Chartreuse in Grenoble. But the recipe is complicated. Each monk who works on the recipe took rigorous tasting notes. One monk wrote, The roots, plants, and flowers must start to be gathered when they are at their peak and in dry weather if possible. They must then be dried in the shade, in a place which is not damp, and where they cannot be wetted by the rain. Where do you even begin with a recipe like that? The other monks thought this, too. I came across this book called The History of Great Chartreuse, and the author is just simply referred to as a Carthusian monk. And he describes the recipe kind of in a disparaging way. It contains so many ingredients and rare herbs which had to be prepared in so complicated a manner and mixed in such minute quantities that the possibility of marketing it on any considerable scale seemed doubtful. But luckily, the monks keep at it. The monks in Paris go on to share the recipe with the brothers at La Grande Chartreuse in Grenoble, and their successors really take the recipe to the next level. These successors are meticulous and kind of savage, to be honest. Here's an excerpt from Brother Jérôme on his thoughts on his predecessor's work. I'm surprised that those who made it did not write at the bottom of the recipe what they put in it, as their compositions were undoubtedly not compliant with it. They had also added Leonurus Cardiaca, which is not in the recipe and which gave the elixir a very bad taste. One of the wildest things that I came across in my research was that the drink was actually supposed to be a ruby color. So, needless to say, the recipe was confusing, and it produced all kinds of results. But eventually, after a lot of test kitchen-style trials, the monks complete the elixir of long life in 1764 and call it elixir vegetal. Given how much R&D they spent on this recipe and how it professed to be a miracle elixir, the Carthusians understood the value it could bring to their order. A note on the three oldest copies of the manuscript from 1755 say that the recipe must never leave the home of a reverend father. And so it's at this point that the recipe becomes a coveted secret, a recipe that's never to leave the Carthusian headquarters. So at this point, the elixir is still like a medicine and not a liquor. That's right. Think of elixir vegetal as kind of a medieval airborne or something. Its alcohol strength is a whopping 138 proof. For reference, the average strength of a 12-ounce beer is 10 proof, so you can imagine the potency here. Wait a second here. Isn't there some kind of taboo against alcohol and religion? That's what I thought, too. So I asked Father Michael. There's nothing, you know, certainly not in our Catholic tradition or in most traditions of the world, there's nothing wrong with alcohol itself. I mean, that's fine. Um, it's a gift, a gift from God. The idea of monks selling an alcoholic beverage would become a bit of an issue later, 
But for now, the monks sold this medicinal elixir to the townspeople of Grenoble. Apparently, it was pretty unrivaled in its ability to ease things like palpitations, indigestion, fainting, and even difficulties during childbirth. I read one account from a woman born in 1894 that said, I remember when we were sick as children, mother would give us a few drops of elixir because it was said to bring the temperature down. It burned terribly on the tongue, but apparently it was good to cure typhoid fever. For her, it was just the thing to cure everything. And our neighbor treated his cows with it. So demand for elixir vegetal grew. And eventually, people began to develop a taste for the elixir outside of its medicinal purposes. I spoke with Matt LeFink, who works for Frederick Wildman and Sons, which is the American importer of chartreuse. Matt's kind of a chartreuse ambassador of sorts. He said, Especially in that time period, tastes good, you know, a lot of alcohol in it, so it makes you feel a little funny. So people naturally started drinking it as a beverage a little bit more. And that's when the monks saw an opportunity to create a consumable, drinkable, approachable beverage that featured the health, you know, kind of uh, background that Elixir Vegetal had and also was just a, a great kind of thing to just sip on and enjoy. But just as the monks embark on another round of R&D to try to make the elixir into a liqueur, the age of enlightenment and the French Revolution set in. People begin to criticize the church's role in society, and the Carthusians become targets of an anti-clerical wave. Chartreuse, the liqueur, almost doesn't get made. So during the Enlightenment, which of course precedes the revolution during the 18th century, there was increasing hostility towards the church as an institution. That's French historian Sarah Curtis. She's the director of European studies at San Francisco State University. Professor Curtis says that during this time, philosophers like Voltaire and Diderot began pointing fingers at religious teachings and the church in general. The public also criticized the wealth that certain religious institutions began to amass. The Carthusians were likely a target because they had a larger presence with multiple satellite houses and monasteries, and their elixir vegetal sales were really starting to take off. The wealth of the church is something that the revolutionaries want to tap into, and so they appropriate church land. And that would have included lands controlled by religious orders. As part of this push, the French government begins seizing assets and removing religious orders from their houses of worship. The way it went down at La Grande Chartreuse was like this. French troops arrived at the monastery in May of 1792. They tried to oust the monks, but they weren't successful. So they returned a second time in October. Dom Efren Couturel, a leading member of the Carthusians at La Grande Chartreuse, recalled the scene this way in a journal entry. Poor monks. They had to leave everything and flee, digging holes to hide their treasures as they could not take them with them. Several of them were caught in their flight, hunted, in prison, or had their throats cut by furious revolutionaries. Some lurkier ones were able to escape the storm and fled abroad or perish on the way from sorrow and hardship. But luckily, one of the monks managed to smuggle out one bit of coveted treasure in his sandal, the secret elixir recipe. Saved by the sandal. Yeah, it was a really close call. 
Eventually, the Carthusians were given a special dispensation from Napoleon Bonaparte to return to their monastery in April of 1816. Almost 25 years had passed since they were kicked out. When the monks returned, their monastery was a mess. There were things strewn about everywhere, and the buildings were hollowed out. But luckily, the pharmacy where they made the elixir had survived. R&D resumed slowly but surely. And then in 1840, the brothers finally created several different versions of chartreuse as a liqueur. The most popular version at the time was yellow chartreuse, and people called it the queen of liqueurs. It contains saffron, which gives it its yellow hue. You can still get yellow chartreuse, which tastes sweeter and less medicinal than elixir vegetal. The monks also produced a white chartreuse based on a recipe for an earlier iteration called melis. And finally, the monks released what we know today as green chartreuse. Green chartreuse retained more of the herbaceousness and color of the original elixir. Initially, these liqueurs were distributed locally, but records show that in 1841, sales really began to take off. In 1848, officers of the Army of the Alps got a taste of yellow chartreuse, and they became so enamored with it that they pledged to become traveling salesmen. They took a sample with them from La Grande Chartreuse to their homes and to their posts, and in 1852, the monks registered a trademark for chartreuse. Pretty soon, the drink became a well-known liqueur across France. So it's finally all coming together. Chartreuse is becoming a success. But then, of course, fate has something else to throw at chartreuse. Another wave of anti-clerical sentiment spreads across France. The monks and their chartreuse are once again at risk. Around this time, some people in Grenoble were getting pretty resentful about how much land monasteries like La Grande Chartreuse had amassed. Other parts of France weren't doing so well, so La Grande Chartreuse was an easy target. Folks also complained that Chartreuse was contributing to, quote, wide and increased alcoholism among the local peasantry, unquote. The French parliament was also cracking down on religious orders because they were afraid that churches were fostering allegiances to Rome instead of to the Republic. Here's Professor Curtis. But men inside of the Catholic Church who now are being characterized at least as owing allegiance to a foreign power, that is the Pope, were uh, definitely targeted during this. So that provides the excuse then to dissolve some of the more prominent religious orders. In July 1901, the French government passed the Associations Act, which put religious orders under government control and supervision. Catholic religious orders now had to get authorization from the state if they wanted to continue practicing and stay in the country. So the monks applied for authorization in 1902, but it was denied. In March the next year, the monks at La Grande Chartreuse were kicked out of their monastery for a second time. When we return, the fate of Chartreuse falls into the hands of the French government, but not without a fight. And now, back to our story. The superior general of La Grande Chartreuse, Pere Baglan, was ready when the French troops came to the monastery. The epic showdown that ensued between the monks and the soldiers was captured in an L.A. Times article. The expulsion of the monks was carried out by a battalion of the 140th Line Regiment, 
half a dozen engineers, and a squadron of dragoons. It was only after an hour's hard work, in the course of which a captain was wounded on the head and a private was struck on the forehead with a knuckle duster, that the principal entrance of the Grande Chartreuse was cleared. When the soldiers entered, they had to go through six other doors to finally reach the sanctuary where the monks were cloistered. It was only after a snowstorm that the monks finally relented. They left the monastery in a single file. The Chicago Tribune captured a photo of this moment where two monks in their white robes are walking with defiant strides. The whole fiasco apparently lasted 14 long hours. So what happened to the chartreuse recipe this time? Well, the monks actually had the foresight to gather all of the recipe manuscripts before they got evicted. Like I said, the superior general had been ready. But the bad news is the French government came and nationalized all of the monks' assets. They also took the monks' chartreuse trademark. The government then hires a man named Henri Le Couturier to obtain the recipe. Le Couturier himself isn't a distiller, so he hires Élisée Coussinier to get the job done. Coussinier reverse engineers the formula and begins making, selling, and distributing what we'll call for our purposes faux chartreuse. The Coussinier company would go on to distribute chartreuse outside of France, including to the United States. Meanwhile, the Carthusian monks end up in Tarragona, Spain, where they have a satellite house. They manage to find a distillery, so they continue to make chartreuse in exile with the label Liqueur fabriqué à Tarragone par les Pères Chartreux. The label made the point clear that this chartreuse was the same one made at the monastery of La Grande Chartreuse in France before the monks were kicked out of the country. But by now, the faux chartreuse was being sold left and right in France and abroad. This is unbelievable. The government just stole the monks' recipe. Yeah, and the monks were livid, too. They just spent centuries perfecting the recipe, and now the French government plucked the trademark right out of their hands. More importantly, the quality of the imitation chartreuse was apparently pretty bad. So, starting in the early 1900s, the superior general of La Grande Chartreuse launched a series of lawsuits to reclaim the Chartreuse name. And one lawsuit made its way to the United States Supreme Court. We'll get back to that case in a little bit. A century before these lawsuits, Chartreuse was making its way to the United States. Americans were starting to experiment with the art of cocktails. In the late 1800s, People like Jerry Thomas were publishing books like The Bartender's Guide, How to Mix Drinks for the Bon Vivant's Companion. Ingredients like chartreuse were key to recipes of that era. In many ways, the rise of chartreuse's status in the United States ebbs and flows with America's cocktail movements throughout history. The first reference we have of chartreuse appearing in a drink recipe uh, would have been 1862. That's cocktail historian Robert Hess. Bit of a fangirl moment here. Robert is often cited as one of the handful of people who helped jumpstart the modern craft cocktail movement. If you've ever seen the cocktail called the Trident, well, Robert's the guy who invented it. And even if you haven't, just take my word for it. He's a pretty big deal. Anyway, Robert explains that chartreuse appears in a cocktail from Jerry Thomas's bartender's guide called the Parisian Pousse Café. 
and it's made of uh, Curacao, Kirschwasser, and Chartreuse put in layers. And that's the only drink using Chartreuse that he lists in there. Robert says that initially, Chartreuse was drunk straight in little sippy shots. Eventually, bartenders began mixing Chartreuse into more complicated drinks that were meant to be mixed or stirred. In 1888, another bartender named Harry Johnson produced a version of his new bartender's manual. In that book, Chartreuse was featured in mixed cocktails. In that particular book, he includes the Pousse Cafe uh, that Jerry Thomas had, but he also has a couple of other uh, drinks in there. He has a a whiskey daisy that uh, includes uh, chartreuse. Um, He has a Kirschwasser punch, uh, which includes chartreuse. Um, And so chartreuse was now picking up steam a little bit. The whiskey daisy and the Kirschwasser punch departed from the quote-unquote old-fashioned cocktails, which were usually a combination of sugar, a spirit base, maybe some bitters, some citrus. The Whiskey Daisy, for example, calls for whiskey, lemon and lime juice, and sugar, and half a pony glass, or an ounce, of yellow chartreuse. The Kirschwasser punch tops the base ingredients of sugar, citrus, Kirschwasser, a type of brandy, with three to four dashes of chartreuse. They were like new-style cocktails, to the extent that if you were wanting a drink made the original way, Uh, you'd ask for an old-fashioned cocktail rather than one of these newfangled cocktails. And in making these newfangled cocktails, they would look at all the different cordials and liqueurs that they stored on the back bar for their customers and started adding those in little, little dashes and teaspoons into the drinks in order to add flavor components. But chartreuse really gets its big break when it appears in a drink called The Last Word. This cocktail was first seen on a dinner menu in 1916 at the hoity-toity members-only Detroit Athletic Club. Chartreuse makes its debut as a co-star ingredient in The Last Word, which contains equal parts lime juice, maraschino liqueur, dry gin, and green chartreuse. But perhaps unbeknownst to the Jerry Thomases and the Harry Johnsons of the bartending world, Some of the chartreuse that was imported to the United States at the time was likely faux chartreuse, the one made by the French government and not the one made by the monks. This, of course, must not have sat well with Père Baglan, the superior general of La Grande Chartreuse. And that brings us back to the Supreme Court case. Baglan sues the Cousinier Company for trademark infringement and unfair competition. In the first legal round, the Southern District Court of New York basically said the monk's original trademark for chartreuse remained valid. But then the case was appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. In 1911, Justice Charles Evans Hughes ruled that there's only one actual chartreuse, and it's the one based on the monk's secret recipe. The result from Baglan versus Cousinier was that no imitation or recreation of the chartreuse liquor by the French government could market itself as chartreuse in the United States. The monks launched several lawsuits against distributors in other countries, and eventually they get their trademark back. And they're also allowed to return to France. The monks then resume production at their French distillery. But then, because this is a story about chartreuse, the distillery is destroyed in a gigantic mudslide. Around 500,000 square meters of soil just slid down the side of the mountain and caused devastating damage. But the cross stood firm as the world turned. The monks then picked up and relocated their operations to another distillery in Voiron, where the chartreuse cellars are today. 
But just as the monks regained control over their chartreuse... Prohibition hits and destroys everybody. Ah, of course. I was wondering when Prohibition would make its appearance in this story. On January 17, 1920, the National Prohibition Act went into effect in America. The production, sale, and transport of what lawmakers described as intoxicating liquors are banned. Imports of foreign liquors halted, which meant that chartreuse faded into the background. Prohibition really threw the world of cocktails and chartreuse for a big loop. Some of the best American bartenders left the United States for Europe, where the cocktail scene was alive and well. Or they switched professions. The bartenders who remained stateside weren't as skilled, according to Robert Hess. And the drinks that relied on obscure ingredients like chartreuse were harder to make. And so they didn't flow like they used to. And then the period after Prohibition ushered in the Great Depression of 1929. Understandably, people just weren't interested, if they could even afford cocktails. Once the Depression subsided, the Second World War brought with it limits on access to alcohol. A lot of distilleries were asked to convert their alcohol into fuel, not to mention the Nazis occupy France. So history, yet again, is not on Chartreuse's side. One notable exception happened during the 1970s, though, when Chartreuse launched its biggest advertisement effort in the United States. It's called the Swamp Water Campaign. Here's Matt LaFink, the Chartreuse ambassador. It used to be this little uh, game kit where you get a couple of mason jars that say Chartreuse Swamp Water on, had a little alligator head on it. And it would come with fun board game activities that you could play with your friends at home. And it came with some pineapple juice, some lime juice, and that was that was the cocktail. You mix pineapple juice, chartreuse, lime juice, and you uh, they had a little slogan that's like, you know, gotta take your date to a swamp water party. Beyond the swamp water campaign, chartreuse was largely forgotten in the United States. During the 80s and 90s, spirits were heavily taxed. So chartreuse sales plummeted, and it wasn't exported as much abroad. It wasn't until people like Robert Hess and others began rediscovering classic cocktails and ingredients that had been lost to time. They kind of resurrect chartreuse from the grave. In 2004, a Seattle-based bartender named Murray Stenson comes across none other than the last word in a vintage cocktail book called Ted Saucier's Bottoms Up. Robert Hess knows Stenson, and he remembers it this way. When Murray first started making the drink, um, at the zigzag, customers would take and try it and, you know, say, wow, this is really fabulous. Other bars in Seattle started taking and picking up what they needed, the chartreuse that they needed uh, to make it with and making it there. And it started spreading out a little bit. The last word made its way to the East Coast to bars like the Pegu Club in New York City. The Pegu Club was the brainchild of mixologist Audrey Saunders. Many modern cocktail renaissance superstars studied under Saunders at the Pegu Club and took their understanding of chartreuse to famous cocktail bars like PDT and Death & Company. Other mixologists on the West Coast, like Marco Valdo Dionysus, gave birth to their own signature cocktails, like the chartreuse swizzle. More bartenders would go on to open their own bars and put their own modern spins on the chartreuse classics and beyond. Steve Yamada, a New Orleans-based bar manager at Beach Bum Berry's Latitude 29, told me he's made a riff on a classic pina colada. Pina coladas are usually made with the base spirit of rum, 
pineapple, coconut, lime, and ice. But Steve's version, it uses chartreuse. I didn't think that one would work. But then the first time I, I had a chartreuse colada, it was just that one another moment, you know, like as far in, in this career and this trade that I can get into, it's like I could still have a sip of a cocktail and just be like, whoa, that's like really cool. And like something as simple as like, hey, we're going to put chartreuse inside of a pina colada and get rid of the rum. Today, chartreuse is a pretty common ingredient at bars, whether it's at a fancy cocktail establishment or at a more mainstream bar. I first discovered chartreuse in a cocktail when I had a Silver Monk, which is from Death & Company. Now, I see chartreuse shining not as a modifier, but as a star ingredient. And when I return to the question of how chartreuse has been able to endure for so long, given all of the trials and tribulations of history, Matt had this to say. There's something about chartreuse that it, it just won't ever go away, you know? and. Maybe it's a little bit of, you know, the history. Maybe it's the mystery. Maybe it's as simple as the taste. And Steve, who made the chartreuse piña colada, said... I think that it has the ability of, like, having a transportive taste that it takes you to a certain place. It has a taste memory that it, it, it's, it produces. The color in of itself, I mean, they named the color chartreuse, I think, after the liqueur. That's, like, how important that is. Part of why I think chartreuse has managed to withstand the blows of history is because its existence continues to yield great stories. Remember my source from the beginning of the episode who described the taste of chartreuse from that blog? Well, his name is Tim Master, and he's the head importer of chartreuse at Frederick Wildman & Sons, where Matt the chartreuse ambassador works. Tim is Matt's boss. And it's like, spend a day in the forest collect everything you can, infuse it into 110-proof booze, and then shotgun it into your mouth. Tim recalls the time when he took a bunch of American bartenders to La Grande Chartreuse. They were invited to lunch with Brother Jean-Jacques, one of the monks currently entrusted with the Chartreuse recipe. They ate at the caretaker's home near the monastery. But I remember a question from Jean-Jacques saying, why am I so busy? Why am I making so much chartreuse? What are you doing in the United States that has me not praying as much as I was? And I remember one of them said, one of the guys said, uh, well, we make cocktails. What's a cocktail? Oh, you know, you never had a cocktail? Right. You never had a cocktail? No, no, no. How do you drink chartreuse? I drink it straight or with ice, the brother says. And all of a sudden, I see, like, just eyes light up. Tim then remembers one of the bartenders rummaging through the caretaker's fridge and finding some ice while others went out in search of herbs. And lo and behold, there happened to be a pineapple. They end up making a chartreuse smash, a pineapple smash, for the monk. A chartreuse smash. Mint, lemon juice, chartreuse, pineapple. Ironically, it's kind of the same ingredients for the swamp water. As Matt remarked when he first told me about this anecdote. Secrets go on both sides, I suppose. The monks are tight-lipped about their recipe. And the invention of cocktails from the outside world was, well, unbeknownst to a monk. Yumi, what a fascinating story. And you're totally right. The cross really does stand still as the world turns. Pretty much. 
So what's the last word on the spirit that just wouldn't die? Should we go and try some, Kevin? Yeah, I'm super excited. Let's do it. Got a nice glass here. Let's put some in just on the rocks. I would start off by putting an amount that's like no bigger than the length of your pinky into the glass because any more of that and you're it's not going to be a good night. (laughs) I am blessed to have a very tiny pinky, so uh, good for me. All right, here we go. Opening up this bottle of chartreuse. All right, if anything happens, tell my wife and my son that I love them. All right. Okay. Come bite. Here we go, folks. Whoa. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. Um, it's, <laughs> I mean this in the best way. It's like a really sophisticated mouthwash. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you but it's it's really good. I mean, there is something minty and kind of bushy. You know, it, it's it's an herb garden that I'm getting. Um, it's not as bad as I thought. I mean, I thought it was going to be like. Um, I thought it was going to be like, you know, strong as vodka, you know, and like just burn my mouth. But it's really mellow and um, yeah, it's really complex, but it's also super refreshing as well. Wow. I love that you picked up on that. Yeah. So that's the power of these like 130 ingredients and all that time that those monks spent on R&D, right? Like they really wanted you to get the mouth feel right. And, you know, I think they did. You know, my takeaway, Yumi, is that I'm really privileged to be tasting this, especially hearing the backstory and and the fact that really there's no reason I should be having this drink in my hand today, and yet it still stands. I'm really glad you introduced Chartreuse into my life, Yumi, and thanks for bringing us the story. Cheers. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more Best of Proof. 